This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. You can find it on page 1023 in the Bibles in your rows. If you'd like to follow along as I read, you can also find it in your bulletins. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also, as, as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thanks God. Be to God. Well, I have a, uh, a plant on my desk. I don't have a lot of plants besides all these ones that are scattered around me this morning. I, I don't uh, have a lot of plants, uh, but this one on my desk in my office right back there is uh, special to me. It was given to me by some friends, uh, when some friends here at New City, who, uh, when my dad passed away a few years ago. And this plant is kind of a living reminder sitting on my desk uh, of my dad, which is really sweet. And this plant is resilient because I'm, I'm not particularly good with them. I don't have a green thumb, but this plant's been going now for three years uh, or more, which I'm excited about. But one of the things that's interesting, and some of you know this, about keeping plants, paying attention to the needs of plants, is you get to respect the rhythms of life. On the one hand, you're reminded that you can't create life. That's not within you to do, right? You can't make it. You can't create it. There's a mystery to organic life. It's not something you can manufacture. But you can pay attention to the conditions under which life flourishes, right? You can cultivate a healthy environment for growth. And I bring this up because we're starting a new series today, which Ryan mentioned earlier, called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit. 
And in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul lists out a number of character traits that are meant to mark the life of a Christian. A Christian individually, but Christians in their life together. What does it mean to grow up into Christ's likeness? And Paul says, well, these things. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In fact, we printed up uh, little, um, I don't know, bookmarks, note cards uh, that are on the insides of the aisles. If you want one that has this verse on it and a prayer on the back that you can use throughout the series. But for the next few months, what we're going to do is be looking at these one by one, the fruit of the Spirit. And a couple of things I just want you to note right here at the outset of the whole series. The first thing is, is this metaphor of fruit, right? Fruit takes time. Doesn't happen all at once. And yet, there should be growth, right? A living tree, a living plant should produce fruit. The fruit actually is the evidence of life. If there's life there, there should be fruit in time. Second thing to note is it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. Fruit, singular, meaning that is all these things are aspects of a fruitful life. All these things are aspects of Christ-likeness. All these things are meant to grow up together. So it's not as if we can pick or choose, right? I'm a self-control person. I'll leave gentleness to somebody else. You can't do that, right? We're meant to have all of these things growing up in us. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And the last thing, just to note really quickly at the outset, these are character traits. These are character traits. They're not gifts or capabilities or skills, or competencies. They're not strategies, but they're character. What does it mean to look more like Jesus? Paul gives us this list, the fruit of the Spirit. And so for the next few months, we're going to look at them one by one, and today we take the one that heads the list, love. The Spirit of God produces in us, in the life of God's people, a life of uncommon love. And we're going to talk about, first, the priority of love, Right? Why does this head the list? There's a reason this is at the start. The priority of love. Secondly, we're going to talk about the source of love. Where does it come from? And then finally, the effects. Right? If we begin to embody this, what will happen? What can we expect to see? All right, so first, let's talk about the priority of love. And before we get into 1 John 4, which was just read to us, I want to talk about Galatians for a second, that place where the list, the fruit of the Spirit is given. And uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians is what you might call a freedom speech. It's a liberation sermon. And you see it straight away in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul writes. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's written this letter to the Galatians about freedom, about the forgiveness they can have, they can experience in Jesus. He's concerned, though, that there are some teachers who've crept in and have said, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but some teachers that creep in and say, okay, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need some other things too. You need Jesus and the works of the law. You need Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and. and Paul says, no, right? There's no Jesus and. It's just Jesus Paul wants to free them from the extra burdens others would heap upon them. For freedom, 
Christ has set us free. And it is worth noting that the Bible defines freedom in a way that's a little bit different than the way most modern people do. The Bible really says there are three main aspects, three main characteristics to freedom. There's what you might call freedom from external forces, freedom from external burdens. And this is similar to what we mean today when we talk about freedom. In in the gospel, Paul says, the Bible says in general, we are free from the burden of having to keep the entire law in order to earn God's favor. And so when Jesus is talking to people who've been weighed down by the exacting burdens of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and all their legalism, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Freedom from external forces. But the Bible also talks about, and this is a little different than modern culture, the Bible talks about freedom from our own inner compulsions, our own inner cravings, freedom from our own urges. There's not just a slavery to things on the outside, like cultural conformity or family expectations, but you also can be enslaved to things that arise up from within you. Whereas our culture might say, right, um, the most authentic you is when you're true to yourself, you do whatever you feel on the inside. The Bible would say, whoa, first of all, recognize that we have contradictory urges. We have contradictory impulses that rise up from within us. How do you decide what to say no to and what to embrace and say yes to? You got to have some sort of framework or rubric for deciding what to pursue and what to, in fact, resist. The Bible also acknowledges that there are things that can come from within you that are damaging and are destructive. Right? Be true to you is often not good advice at all. Like some of the things that rise from within us are destructive both to ourselves but also to the other people around us. And so in Galatians 5, Paul says, You were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or for the self. Freedom from our own internal compulsions and cravings and urges, which leads us to the third aspect of freedom. Christ has set us free to live the life we were made for. See, it's not just freedom from, but freedom for. Paul says, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Christ has set us free so that we can live a life of love. The primacy of love, right? Christ has come to set us free. Not free to serve ourselves, free to become the people that we're meant to be. People of an uncommon love. Galatians 5, 14, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which then brings us to John. And in the chapter right before the one that Ryan read to us, First John chapter 3 Verse 14, John says this. He says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You hear what he's saying? He's saying love is the sign. Love is the evidence. Love is the fruit that proves the life of the Holy Spirit is in us. Love is the fruit that demonstrates there's really life at work within us. Eternal life is received by faith, but it's demonstrated by love. Eternal life is received by faith, but it's demonstrated by love. Christopher Wright, a British theologian, put it this way. 
He said, how do you know if a believer or a church is alive? Look for love. Where there is love, there is life. When Christians truly put love into practice, it is evidence, assurance, that the life of God is present among them and in them. But when we don't put love into practice, when we fight and squabble, divide and denounce each other, what does it say about us? If there's no love, says John, we have not come to life at all. We remain in death. Eternal life is received by faith. It's demonstrated by love. Christians ought to be known in the world for our uncommon love. New City Church, we ought to be known in Cincinnati and Norwood for uncommon love. Love for each other, which is hard enough on its own, but also love for other people. Love for people who don't agree with us. Love for people who don't like us. Love for people who don't understand us. Love for people who are different than us. Love for people who can't do anything for us. Does this kind of love visibly mark your life? Just think throughout the morning. Think right now. Who are the people in your life that are the hardest for you to love? Are you growing in your ability to love them? Are you trying to cultivate that fruit? Right? Are you trying to create the conditions where that kind of love, that miraculous, uncommon love, can grow in your life, in your heart, in your mind? The primacy of love. But secondly, let's talk about the source. Where does this come from? Where does this kind of love come from? And the Bible tells us, our passage in particular tells us, unsurprisingly maybe, that it comes from God because God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not Love does not know God, because God is love. Now, notice it doesn't say that God is loving, although that's certainly true. Of course he is. But it's more than that. It's not just that God is loving, it's that God is love. His essence is love. His being is love. And this idea, this notion, made Christianity completely revolutionary in the ancient world. Other ancient religions thought about God's supernatural forces in terms of power. Which meant that love, you know, love comes in later, secondary, tertiary, if at all. Love was not at the heart of the universe in the ancient worldview. Power was, strength was, not love. And, and for others, right, if it wasn't just pagan religions, it was... Pagan philosophy, it was a tightly ordered hierarchy of being that was at the center of the universe. So an Aristotelian order of being, order of ontology, order of value, not love. Or maybe it was blind chance, random chance at the center of the universe. But into that steps Christianity, which says the greatest reality in all of the universe is love. So if you say love is a cosmic reality... It might sound like kind of a hippie bumper sticker, but it's actually a deeply Christian notion because God is love. Now, notice also it doesn't say love is God, right? God is love. It doesn't say love is God, which means then also love is not something we get to define for ourselves. It's not an empty container which we can fill up with whatever meaning we prefer. Rather, love is defined by who God is. When we learn who God is, then we learn to understand the parameters, the essence, the, uh, the, the uh, foundation of what love is. Because God is love. 
The second thing I want you to notice, and maybe even more amazing, not just that God is love, but John tells us God loves us, verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. Again, also unusual in the ancient world. Rodney Stark, a social scientist, wrote a book about the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, and he says this. He says, there was nothing new about the idea that the supernatural makes behavioral demands on humans. The gods have always wanted sacrifices and worship. Nor was anything new in the idea that the gods will exchange their services for the sacrifices of mortals. What was new was that there was more than a quid pro quo relationship was possible between humans and the supernatural. The Christian teaching that God loves mortal creatures was utterly alien to pagan beliefs because a God, as Aristotle had long taught, could feel no love for mortals in response to sacrifices offered. Christianity brought a unique and startling idea into the world that God is moved with love for you. And then thirdly, the proof of this love, John says, is in Jesus. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul Miller has a great book on Jesus, and and the, the title's great too. It's just simply, Love Walked Among Us. Love walked among us. The God of love walked among us. Just as the Old Testament describes God as the defender of widows and orphans, the God who's close to the brokenhearted, a God of persistent, steadfast love, even to rebellious people. Jesus came into the world incarnating that love. He cast out demons. He restored sight to the blind. He preached good news to the poor. He set captives free. He forgave sins. He welcomed sinners. And most of all, he poured himself out as he died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiate means to turn away wrath, to turn away punishment, to turn away judgment. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled and restored to God. And then finally, John says, Jesus is not just the proof of God's love for us, but he's also the model of how we're supposed to love each other. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The heart of the Christian faith is Jesus moving toward us in love. Think about that. The very center of the Christian confession, the center of the Christian faith, is that God moved toward you when you didn't deserve it. Remember how Paul writes it in Romans? He says, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've got to work that out for yourself, right? Think about that. Jesus died for you when you had absolutely terrible ideas, right? When you believed the wrong things, when you had the wrong perspective, right? Jesus moved towards you when you had repulsive ideas about the world, Jesus moved towards you. Jesus died for you when you were living in rebellious ways, when you were living in ways that were rebellious to God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He moves toward people in love. And then John says, well, then that's the model for how you're supposed to love others. It's the kind of love 
that forbears with others, that moves toward others who are different than you. It's the kind of love that even extends to your enemies. Because that's the kind of love that has come to us. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon uh, November 17th, 1957, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama. And he took Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount as the subject of his sermon, love your enemies. And uh, you have to understand that this was in the thick of the civil rights movement. So this is not an academic exercise for Dr. King as he's trying to apply these, right? These are very real and very dangerous times. Uh, civil rights workers being attacked, uh, bombings at churches, bombings at Dr. King's own house. He has a very real sense of dangerous enemies. And listen to what Dr. King says. He says, if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. Love your enemies. And King goes on to say, we don't just learn this from the teachings of Jesus, right? When he teaches his disciples to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he says, we don't just learn it from his teachings. We actually learn it from the life of Jesus because that's what he did for us. He died for us when we were his enemies. And here's his close to the sermon. There's a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came into the world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stage of history. Oh, no. It's a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It's an eternal reminder that love is the only way. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. God is love. He loves us, and the proof of that love is in Jesus Christ, and now we're called to that love because he first loved us. So then lastly, what are the effects, right? What will that love do? And there's a lot of things that could be said about this, but two in particular that I want to highlight from 1 John chapter 4. John says first, right, if we begin to embody this kind of love, it will make God's love Visible, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Christopher Wright again, British theologian, he says, we're supposed to be the living truth of the living God. No one can see God, but people can see us. And when we love one another, it is the love of God that we see. When Christians love each other in practical, sacrificial, costly, barrier-dissolving ways, then the love of God, or rather the God who is love, becomes visible, can be seen. In a world that's stained with sin and selfishness, in a world in the grip of tribalism and hate, an uncommon love, a costly serving love, displays the love of God. And the world should be able to look at Christians and see how they live together, how they love each other. 
and get a glimpse of the love of God. I have a friend named John Bourgeois, pastor friend. And he tells a story uh, about a woman in his church, a friend of his, before she became a Christian, she worked at a bar and uh, she had been working there for a number of years and the same group of, of women uh, came uh, to the bar every Tuesday night, I think it was. They'd get together, spend time together. And so she got to know these women uh, there because they came every week. She waited on them every week. And one day, one of the women was, was just devastated. She was crying and the others were sort of circling around her and, and John's friend asked one of the others, you know, what happened? What's going on? And they explained that this woman had had a miscarriage and was in the grip of terrible grief. And then she tells the story of watching her friends, these other women, care for her and her suffering. She said she'd never seen anything like it. And she said this, she says, it's like when you hear about wild horses If one gets injured, the other horses circle around it with their back legs facing out to protect the wounded horse from the attacks of wolves and other predators, and they stay there for as long as it takes until the injured horse heals. They refuse to let anything else hurt them. And John's friend said this, she said, this is what I saw in those women, and she said, can I come to your church? And she did, and eventually... She embraced Christ. No one can see God, but people can see us. And when we love one another, it's the love of God that they see. Our love can make the love of God, or the God who is love, visible. Secondly, John says, love casts out fear. Love casts out fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, with each other, there's a lot to fear in this world, isn't there? I mean, there's existential fears, right? We see violence, we see shootings, we can feel marginalized in our culture, we can feel at risk, we can feel the likelihood of being mistreated. Some of us maybe have been mistreated. There's existential fears, there's also internal fears. Am I good enough? Am I lovable? Have I done enough? Will people stick by me? Will God stick by me? If we're honest, those fears aren't small, right? They're not without, entirely without precedent. You can think of real dangers in this world. It's not all in your mind. You can think of real failures in your life. That's not all in your mind. But John says perfect love casts out fear. So I want you to listen, really listen to verse 19 for a second. John says, we love because he first loved us. Now that's exactly the opposite of how most of us operate most of the time, right? We think we have to love God first to get him to love us back. But the gospel tells us again and again, God does it all for us. He moves first. He bleeds out for us. He goes to the cross for us. And that is incredibly important to our security, to our value. Because if we didn't earn God's love, then we can't de-earn God's love. And because of that, we understand the dependability of God's love. His love stays when he's set upon us. Verse 17 says believers then can have confidence 
on the day of judgment. Confidence, right, is the opposite of fear. Confidence because, verse 16, God is love. God loves you not because you're especially lovable, but because that's who he is. The impetus for his love is in him, not in you. And that means it doesn't change. The economy can change. The weather may change. The stock market may change. Presidents may change. Political and cultural mood might change. But God will never change. And God is love. This confidence in the love of God for his people then casts out fear. Fear of his judgment. Fear that he'll abandon you. Now listen, the Bible never promises that this is fast or easy. You will have trouble in this world. Life can be really hard. John knew that, right? He's not ivory tower. He's riding from exile. He's been imprisoned. He's watched his friends be rounded up and some of them killed. But John can say that love casts out fear. He can write this because he saw love. He saw love incarnate hanging on a cross. He saw love incarnate raised to life on Easter. He saw love incarnate ascend to heaven. He heard love incarnate then give him a mission to spread this love. As John embraced that love, he saw fear melt away. And in place of fear, love can grow. And this love needs to be shared. Verse 14 John says, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, this love is meant to go out to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our classmates, to the ones who look different than you, to the ones who talk different than you, to the ones who vote different than you, to the ones who are needy or annoying or scary. We love because God first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. And when you're freed from fear, you can move toward hard things. You can move toward difficult people. You can build more bridges and lob less grenades. You can contribute to a church that builds up a kingdom of love rather than constructing a fortress of fear. Perfect love, not your love, but God's love in you, casts out fear. We have to wrap up here, but I just want to say one last thing about the fruit of the Spirit in general. Galatians 5, Paul talks about The works of the flesh, right? Things that he's calling us to leave off, break away from, repent from. And then he makes a contrast, right? The works of the flesh on the one hand. And then you'd expect him to call the next thing the works of the spirit. But he never does. He never calls them the works of the spirit. He calls them the fruit of the spirit. Which is a reminder that you and I, we can't just knuckle down, buckle down and make these things grow in us, right? You don't have that in you. It's not a dig down deep kind of thing. That's not where love is found. That's not where joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control come from. You can't manufacture these things. So what can you do? You can try to get close to Jesus. You can water the roots of your soul with God's word and with prayer, with fellowship and with worship. You can draw near to Jesus as you come to the Lord's Supper every week. Because who is the fruit of the Spirit really describing anyway? Right? Who is that kind of character? Is it you? Is it me? This is the character of Jesus. If you want love to grow in your life, come back to Jesus. Get close to Jesus. And over time, you'll begin to bear fruit. And I'll just close by saying that, you know, John Stott is a hero of mine. Great pastor, British pastor, world missions leader, and the, the people, I, I had a friend who interned for him for four years, 
And he said, you know, the people who knew John Stott personally said as great of a theologian, as great of a leader, as great of a preacher as he was, he was even a better person. And every morning, John Stott prayed this prayer. It's actually on the back of your little card if you have it. And maybe you can make it your prayer during this series. But here's what he would pray every day. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you'll fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's just take a moment silently and make this prayer your own, and then we'll come together to the Lord's Supper. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.